What a blessing it is to be with you this morning. If you have your Bible handy with you, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of First Peter, the book of First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, as we pick up where we left off last week, we looked last week sort of in a survey fashion at one of the major themes of this letter, namely how to live as strangers and exiles in the world. We are pilgrims and strangers in this world. We don't quite fit in anymore as Christians. We are here in the world, we live in the world, but we are not of the world. As we learned last week, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there, we look for our Redeemer. We look for King Jesus to come. And we look for Him to establish the world in perfect justice, in perfect righteousness, and peace forever and forever. So, First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we will read two verses, and then let's pray together. So, First Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray together. Lord, we are truly thankful this morning to open your infallible, inerrant, inspired word. We thank you for giving it to us through the apostles and those that you Uh, inspired to write. We thank you, Lord, for preserving it down through the centuries so that we have it here today. And many of us, we have it right here in front of us. We can hold it in our hands, your self-revelation to us. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. And now we pray, God, that you would work in our hearts to teach us from it. We pray this morning that you will open our eyes to see glorious truths and realities in your holy word, by the power of your Holy Spirit who indwells us. We pray for every soul, every heart that's in here today. God, if there's one here this morning that's lost, they came in here maybe just looking into this thing called Christianity. We pray that you would today, by your powerful spirit and your cords of love, you would draw them and call them to repent and turn away from their sins and to trust in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for your church that we would grow in theological development. We pray that we would grow in spirituality, in the likeness of Christ, both in our character, our attitudes, our thinking, and our actions of life. God, we pray for this, for our good here today, for the good of future generations, and we pray it ultimately for your glory. And we ask it by faith in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. So, you can see there on the screen, we're going to talk this morning primarily about one word. (laughs) Chosen pilgrims take heart. This is what we want to think about for just a moment. And you'll see it there in verse 1, to those who are the, what? Elect exiles. And if you kind of skip over that and, and you realize that this is one long sentence, And so if you kind of skip over those geographical areas that these Christians were scattered abroad among in that that historical time, 
you'll see, let's read it that way. To those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so when we read that greeting, when we read that introduction from the Apostle Peter, it hits us, I think, as a very theologically rich introduction and greeting, doesn't it? It really does stand out. When we read those words, it's kind of foreign to any other kind of letter that you've ever written or I've ever written. It almost seems strange, in a way, to read such a greeting and such an introduction to a letter to a group of Christians that are going to be scattered abroad throughout those various cities. And so the first thing that I want us to just jump in on and think about for a moment is that reality. And so this is what, if you're a note taker, you might want to try to get this. This is simply a theological, weighty introduction of stabilizing, encouraging truth. I'll say it again. That is what we just read in those two verses A theological, weighty introduction of stabilizing, encouraging truth. And that's, you can, you can hear that in the title that, that I gave to this sermon. Chosen pilgrims take heart. And again, the church knows, many of you, what I'm thinking right now. Theology, Christian doctrine, is for life. So the reason that he put it there is not just so that we would study theology together, although I like doing that, and that's a beautiful thing and worthy of our attention, but it's, it's even more so than that. It is a theological weighty introduction, greeting, of stabilizing, encouraging truth. And it is amazing and wonderful way to greet the church. The Apostle Paul wrote two similar greetings that I want to point you to this morning. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, if you would turn over there for just a moment. In Ephesians chapter 1 and also in Titus chapter 1, the apostle Paul uses a very similar greeting. And I'll see if you can pick out the similarities there. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 5. Ephesians 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives this great, swelling, beautiful, glorious, theological sentence that is hanging right there on the front door of this letter. And he does it very intentionally. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. So what did you Did you catch it there, the similarities between the two greetings? That one was a little longer, a little more stretched out, but there were two similar phrases. Let's go to Titus chapter 1. 
Turn to Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. And as you look at those two verses, Titus 1, 1 and 2, I think it will become clear. The pattern that is set before us, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Now he's writing this particular letter, the Apostle Paul, to Titus, who is an apostolic delegate that has kind of been vested with this authority to help establish Christian doctrine, to help organize the local churches in, in their doctrine and also in their practice. This is what he says in his opening greeting, his introduction. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, there's three things that are in those three introductions. They are very similar. As we go back to First Peter, you have Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, in the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. All three of those take this weighty theological introduction and put it before their discourse within the letter. And the similar word that you find in all three of those is the word elect. Elect. Now, what does it mean? What, let, what does the word elect mean? It's not complicated. Elect means chosen. If you, if you went to the polls this past year, you went there to do what? Elect a president or a senator, or you went there to select a person, did you not? That's what you did. An election is someone who is selected, someone who is chosen. It's the word eklektos in the Greek, eklektos, chosen, selected, picked out. You went there and there was a ballot and there was different people that you could vote for, but you selected one, not the others, but the one, and that was your Election, that was your choosing, that was your selection, that was your pick out of those available. Well, that's what the word means, and he uses it in all three of these contexts. He says, to the elect exiles, or the elect strangers, those strangers who are elect, those strangers who are chosen. Chosen by who? Chosen by God. That's the point. That's the implication. To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, there's the first person of the Trinity. In the sanctification of the Spirit, there's the third person of the Trinity. For obedience to Jesus Christ, there's the second person. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So here you have this weighty theological introduction that's meant to stabilize and encourage these Christians. You see, because really... In reality, the word elect or chosen is only another term in New Testament Scripture for Christians. Did you know that? The word elect is really another term for Christians, for believers. Some may think, some of you may even think, that it's a little strange to have such an introduction to a letter. But as we're going to see, I hope, it is actually very fitting as we consider the condition of the church at the time of the writing, and what they were facing and what they would face in the very near future, namely persecution of great proportion. 
You remember we talked about that a little bit last week. He, he, he talks about suffering faithfully and holding up under the midst of persecution, trials of various kinds. That's going to be scattered throughout this letter. And he puts it right in the introduction, some weighty theological stuff, doctrine that is intended to be a ballast in the boat of their life and to be foundation under their feet so that they will hold up strong and true under the weight of cultural pressure and under the weight of persecution which will come very severely. At this particular time of the writing, my friends, it was just prior to the burning of Rome, 64 A.D. Nero. You, you, you probably heard that name before. Well, during that time, there was a fire set ablaze in Rome. And it began to burn and burn and burn. And people's lives were absolutely devastated. And so in order to protect Nero, in order to protect the leadership, in order to protect the local people from any accusation, because Nero was kind of known as someone who liked to watch things burn so that he could rebuild things in a glorious manner. He loved to do that. And so so to protect him, they shifted the blame to the Christians. And if you go back in church history, you will find some of the most horrific things that could happen to you, happen to these Christians, just because they were Christians. They would dip them in pitch and set them on fire at their gatherings to use them as torches to light up the courtyards. They would put animal skins on their bodies and set the dogs loose on them so they would rip them to shreds. They would crucify them, obviously. They would sear them with, they would stick blades of knives and swords into the hot flames and sear their faces and their bodies. They severely persecuted the Christians. And the Apostle Peter understood this. He knew what they were facing. He knew that they were going to face even more of this kind of treatment from the world because we're not at home in the world anymore. And he says, listen, you need to understand something. You may not be chosen by the world. Jesus may be rejected by the world. You may be rejected by the world, but you are chosen by God. Now that means that puts something under your feet, beloved. That puts something in your heart so that when they are dipping you in the pitch, you can know, you can know right then and there that you're in the hands of a sovereign, loving God who will never leave your side, never forsake you, that he will stand by you even in that moment of horrific pain. And that you will soon be entering in to the very presence of the Lord. That's why it's there. And that's why I say, chosen pilgrims. Take heart. Take heart. So, not only do we have an introduction of weighty theological truth, but one with pointed practical intent. Because theology is not just an academic exercise. It is always intended for your life. It is always intended for your joy. It is always intended for your good. It is always intended for your peace. It is God's blessing to reveal to you great, swelling theological truths. Listen, even if... In your finite mind, you can't fully grasp it. I talked about the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. These three are one and yet three distinct persons. Can you understand that? No, not fully. 
But you can believe it. Why? Because it's biblical. It's in the Bible. We know that there is a triune God. We know there are three distinct persons. But that it is, there is one true and living God. We see the activity of the Father, the activity of the Son, the activity of the Spirit. And, and it's one, one God, the triune God. But our finite, limited minds as human beings, with our fallen human logic, even though we have the Holy Spirit, is still on this side of glory, not capable of understanding that. But we believe it. Because it's in the Bible. Because God has taught it to us. And so it's a very theological, weighty truth, but one appointed practical intent. Namely, the stabilizing encouragement for their hearts, their souls, and their minds. Pastor John MacArthur writes, quote, He states this truth of sovereign election for what it is. A reality recognized and believed among the apostles and in the church. In other words, this is not a strange or even obscure doctrine in Scripture, but a doctrine that is pervasively and clearly biblical. So now, you have to ask yourself a question. If you read that verse, those two verses, and you heard me talk about election and choosing did that seem strange to you did that seem odd to you did that seem different than what you're used to when you think about the christian life when you think about salvation when you think about the work of the triune god for the salvation of sinners when you hear that kind of an introduction to a letter do you say you know that's strange our pastor never talks that way. Our, our teacher never, I've never heard that before. As a matter of fact, I, I never really noticed that that was in the Bible at all. Well, then you have to ask yourself the question, why does it seem strange? Why? And we would have to conclude that if it does seem strange, we would have to conclude this. Number one, it doesn't feel strange to the Apostle Peter. It doesn't feel strange to those churches and those Christians in the first century because it's in the introduction of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It's in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and following. It's, it's right there. And so, what it, as, as MacArthur stated, this, he states his truth of sovereign election for what it is. A reality, listen, recognized and believed among all the apostles and in the church. It's not a strange, obscure doctrine in Scripture, but a doctrine that is pervasively biblical and clear. Pervasively clear and biblical in Scripture. So, the first thing we would have to acknowledge, it's not obscure to the apostle and to the first century church. So why is it strange to people today? Conclusion number two. Somebody has not been preaching about it. Somebody has been not teaching about it. If you this morning came in this room and you have been to the church for any length of time and you've never heard that verse or you've never heard this concept in Scripture... 
then you must conclude that someone, pastor, teacher, pastors, teachers, have not been preaching it and teaching it. And secondly, you thought I was going to let you off the hook, didn't you? Secondly, you would also have to conclude, actually, that's the third thing. See, I'm watching. Y'all keep, y'all keeping up. The third thing you would have to conclude is that you yourself must take responsibility. In your daily reading of the Bible, have you never come across 1 Peter chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1? Have you never taken notice that it's there? Have you ever thought about what it means and why it's there? Beloved, listen, I'm not trying to step on your toes. I want you to understand, I've done it. You've done it. We can read every day, and for some reason, <laughs> I don't know, we just don't see something. And then all of a sudden, one day, by God's grace, somebody points it out and helps us. So, let's think about this. Let's turn a corner here. I'm saying to you that this is not strange or obscure doctrine in Scripture, but a doctrine that is pervasively and clearly biblical. Now, let's, let's ask this question. All right? Prove it. Let's, let's take a journey and see, first of all, if this doctrine is, as I say, pervasively. You know what that word means, don't you? Throughout. Pervasively and clearly biblical. Okay? So, under that, under that thought, let's think about this. The word elect, or the word chosen, to select, became a word associated directly with the people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament. So let's go back there. If you were to turn back to the book of Genesis, for example, and you were to go to Genesis chapter 12, you would find that God, in His sovereign grace and in His sovereign choice, selected Abraham to be the father of the people of Israel. You want to take a guess how many people were living on the planet at the time that Abraham was living on the planet? I have no idea. But I'd say there were more than a few, wouldn't you? Just guessing. By the time we get to Moses, the people of Israel themselves are like two million. Something like that. When they cross through the Red Sea. But at this time, you know, God had not began the process there with them. But he starts with one man. And in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said in verse 1 to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him. So here we have the beginning. You have the founding father of the nation of Israel, Abraham. Actually, God changed his name. But out of all the hundreds and thousands of people on the planet, God sovereignly selected Abraham. Now, the question we're going to answer later on, and I'll go ahead and put it out there even now, is, well, did he do that because of something that was inherent in Abraham? No. No. It was nothing. It had nothing to do with Abraham. It had to do with God. It had to do with God. So then Abraham has a son. His name is Ishmael. And this was a son that represents the work of the flesh. He, he was old. He wasn't having a child through Sarah, his wife. And so he, he, Sarah says, hey, just take, take my handmaid and you go into her. And maybe we could have a child through her. And so he does. He does. And the result of that is a child named Ishmael. 
And as the child gets older and God comes back and he says, you know, I'm going to bless you and, and all the families of the earth be blessed through you, through your seed, through your descendant. And he says, oh, just let Ishmael be the one. He says, no, no. That is a what? That's a choice. God said, no, Ishmael's not the one. You didn't listen. I told you that through Sarah, you would have a son. His name is going to be Isaac. And through him, the promise will continue. So Abraham, it goes to Isaac, and Isaac has two sons. The oldest is named Esau, right? The the youngest is named Jacob. And the oldest would normally have the privilege of receiving the blessing, the greater blessing from the family. But in this situation, God says, no, not him, Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel because he had he, he walks as a prince with God. His name was changed to Israel. And he had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Now, these people began to associate themselves, understanding that they were a part of the covenant people of God. They began to associate themselves rightly as the chosen people of God. Look, if you will, in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. This is the way that God speaks about his people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has what? Has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. There were nations many and a plenty. But God chose Israel to be, listen, a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. This was a term associated with Israel, God's covenant people in the Old Testament. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 2. You'll find the same thing. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God and the Lord has chosen you. To be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so God is selecting a people as a treasured possession out of all the peoples on the earth. Why? Because he is God and he chose to do so. Did he have to do it? No. What would compel him to do it? Only one thing. His own sovereign will. He wanted to do it, and that's why he done it. Look, if you will, in Psalm chapter 105, Psalm 105. As they were inspired later on, they began to write psalms and, and these hymns that they would sing, inspired by God to use in their worship times as, as the people of God. Psalm 105, verse 43. So even in their music, it comes out. Psalm 105 and verse 43. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. Turn over to Psalm 135, Psalm 135, verse 4. Psalm 135, verse 4. For the Lord has what? Chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. So there is just a little sampling of the Old Testament covenant people of God that were associated with, the, with this idea of God's chosen people 
out of all the nations of the world, he chose them. Now, they were to be a light unto the Gentiles. They were to be a people that would testify through their very way of living of the true and the living God. And people could see their righteous living and their righteous laws, although they failed miserably to do that. But it was there that, that there was provisions that people could see the distinction of the people of Israel among all the other nations of the world and say, hey, what's up with that? And there they could come into the camp, as it were, if they were willing to submit to the God of Israel and follow his law. Okay, but what about the New Testament? What about the new covenant people of God, the church? What we're going to discover is the same thing. Let's see it there as we turn over. Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, it's a great eschatological chapter. Eschatology is the doctrine of end time things. And Jesus is talking about the great tribulation period. And during the great tribulation period, beloved, there will be signs and wonders that, 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 that Satan and demon spirits will be performing. They will be so deceptive to the people's eyes. And there will be so much destruction and so much death during that time period that it leads Jesus to make a statement. Matthew 24 Verse 22, 24, verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. No human being would be saved. But for the sake of the who? Elect. Those days will be cut short. So here you have a people group designated as the elect, being the reason that those days are going to be cut short Because there are going to be some people say. He goes on in Matthew 24 verse 24. Verse 24 he says. For false Christs and false prophets will arise. And perform great signs and wonders. So as to lead astray. Comma. If possible. Comma. Even the elect. Even the elect. Matthew chapter 24 verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet calls. This is a big end time gathering in of the people of God. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 verse 7. We're going to spend more time in the New Testament to see that this is pervasively and clearly a biblical doctrine. And beloved, every preacher that neglected to point these texts out to you is accountable to God on behalf of your souls for that willful neglect. They are. And I'm not going to be one of them. Luke chapter 18 verse 7. And will not, Luke chapter 18 verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect? Who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? Of course, the implication of that is no. (laughs) He's not going to. He is going to bring swift justice to this world. And he's going to do it on behalf of a group of people that are designated the elect. The chosen. Look, if you will, in Romans. This great, wonderful, powerful, strength-giving, encouragement-giving promise. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Have you ever had the notion that somebody was accusing you? Did you know that Satan is an accuser of the brothers and sisters in the church to God? Did you know that? 
He actually goes before the Father and accuses us. Look at what he did. Look at what she did. You're not going to save them, are you? You're not going to accept them like that. Look at what they just did. Look at how they are. He does that. In Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's, what? Elect. It is God who justifies. That, that's a promise, beloved, that is intended not to just teach you theology, but who can bring a charge against you? If God is the one who has justified your sinful soul through the person of Jesus Christ, there's no charge that can be laid at your feet that will have any impact at all. Because it is God who justifies. Look, if you will, in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. He uses it here as a source of encouragement for them to live a certain way. Colossians 3, 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The motivation to these things of meekness and patience and kindness toward other people is the deep-rooted theological truth that holds the ballast in your boat that keeps you stable and upright and moving steadfast and sure and, and with confidence in this world. Namely, that you're holy and beloved unto the Lord. Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. Paul talks about his ministry. His ministry as a missionary. His, his ministry as, a, as an apostle that preaches the gospel calling for people to repent and believe on Jesus. He tells us why he does that ministry. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. And he endured great hardship to do that. You all know that, right? He was beaten. He was stoned and drug out of the city and left for dead. He was imprisoned all the time. He was shipwrecked. He, he was hungry often without clothing and, and proper food. And, and he, he, says, he says in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So one of the things that you might be thinking is, well, if God is choosing, then what difference does it make what anybody else does? Don't make that mistake. And you can tell by that text right there. He does it so the elect will be saved. The implication is that's the means through which, through which Christians get saved. The chosen do not get saved except they hear the gospel and believe. Don't confuse it. That's what he says. I endure everything that I'm enduring for the sake of the elect. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. How can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach unless they be sent? Uh, It is by your, your faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So how beautiful are the feet of those who, who preach the good tidings of great things, who preach the everlasting gospel of grace. We have to preach it. We have to send missionaries. We have to support them. We have to pray for them so that the elect are saved. That's what he says. Titus. We already looked at that. Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith. Apostle, a servant of God and an apostle sent out, one sent out 
and commissioned by Jesus Christ. Why? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. How will the elect have faith? The apostle had to be sent. It's the same thing. So the apostle Peter is writing as we go back to the elect, the chosen of God. And he could have just simply addressed them as Christians. He could have just said, go back there. He could have just said, apostle, uh, apostle, (laughs) Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those of you who believe. He could have said that. He could have said, to those of you who are Christians scattered abroad in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He could have said that, but he didn't. He didn't. He could have addressed them, even as the Apostle Paul does in other, in other letters, as the church. But this particular greeting and this particular introduction, my friends, is intentional. He does this intentionally. Because... It is for their good. It is, it is not meant to be just theological academics. It is meant to be for their soul's stability and encouragement under the weight of the persecution that would be coming and that they were already enduring. It was with intentionality. He knew, listen, from his own experience with Jesus and from, secondly, the teachings of Jesus, that to be a Christian would be to suffer great persecution. He Remember what Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a, a sword. And he said the enemies of one, uh, the enemies of, of a person would be the enemies of their own household. Can you imagine that? How people heard such a statement. And it's just as true today as it was then. Oftentimes in in, in this life, in this world, when you are born again of the Spirit of God and you, you are united with Christ and you become a Christian, a new creation, as, as our sister, where's she at back there, read earlier. You become a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. A lot of times that sets us at odds with the people around us in the world. Not because we don't like them, but because now we're not at home in the world and they are. And sometimes they get hostile about it. Sometimes they don't like the fact that we're saying that all people are sinners and that they need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ or they will die and go to hell forever. They don't like that message. They don't want to hear that. So sometimes persecution comes even from those that we love the most in this world. And he knew that. Jesus himself was rejected by many from the beginning of his ministry and throughout his ministry. And finally, he was violently arrested by night. He endured a mock trial and then he was crucified. And the apostle Peter, you remember, was with him all that time. The leader of the Christian church, Christ Christians, was lied about, slandered, there was brutal violence and crucifixion murder. And then the very teachings of Jesus taught that this would be the case. Luke chapter 21 and verse 12, Jesus said, but before all this, talking about the end times, again, Luke 21, 12, 
But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, down to verse 20. John 15, 18 to 20. Listen to what Jesus taught his disciples. Peter is right there. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. That's John fifteen, eighteen to 20. If you were of the world, verse 19, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, comma, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The apostle Peter knew this. And the reason that he gives such a weighty theological introduction and greeting to his letter is because he's writing to a bunch of people that have been scattered abroad on planet earth and they're Christians they're not at home in the world anymore and they're going to be persecuted and they are being persecuted and they're going to have to endure it and what helps you to endure it to know the sovereign work of God that's what helps you to understand there's a God on the throne and that when I'm being persecuted he didn't fall asleep (laughs) he didn't he didn't take a nap He didn't forget about me. He didn't make a mistake, but he's right there with me. He's right there with me, upholding me as his dear, chosen, beloved child. So the purpose of this weighty theological greeting and introduction to his letter was intended to give them stabilizing encouragement. And I would submit to you this morning that that's the the reason it's in the Bible pervasively and clearly. Because it's always intended to bolster the faith and the strength and the courage of God's people. Always. They and all Christians of every generation were spiritual and are spiritual strangers and exiles on the earth, not at home. And so he greets them in this way. The world may reject Jesus. The world may reject you, but God has not rejected you. God has chosen you. So take heart, be encouraged, press on in faith, press on in faithfulness to God. Who can lay any charge at your feet? It is God who justifies. It's always intended to bolster your faith. The doctrine and the reality of sovereign election in scripture is not just a theological truth, but it is an intentional reminder of encouragement to God's people. In other words, it is intended to give them peace and strength through the divine perspective. Divine perspective. Do you see through the divine perspective? No, not unless God gives you a glimpse into it, right? You see through the eyes God's given you. These natural eyes look and they see and they assess. And we have logic, although it's fallen human logic. When we're born again, we become a new creature. Now we have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We have the wisdom of Christ. Now we have help. Now we have hope. But we still have a fallen human nature to contend with. We still have that fallen human logic. 
And so God often gives us glimpses from the divine perspective, although we can't fully grasp them, but they are intended for our good to give us encouragement and strength in the Christian life. The divine perspective in this case is that they were chosen of God. First Peter chapter 2, let's go back. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race. First Peter chapter 2 verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. See if this, this doesn't sound familiar, this next phrase. A people for his own possession. I think the King James might say uh, a peculiar people. You're a people that's peculiar. You're, you are different than the rest of the world, and God is the decisive factor in making you that difference. A people for his own possession. Why? He goes on. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Christians are a chosen race, a people for God's own possession. How about the book of Acts? Acts chapter 15. You all thought I was about finished, didn't you? (laughs) If it's pervasively biblical, you're going to see it everywhere. And I want you to already ask yourself the question, if you haven't already, why haven't I seen this before? Acts chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. Acts chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. This is James talking at the Jerusalem council over the doctrine of justification. The legalistic Jews were saying you can only be justified if you keep the law that God gave to Moses. If, you don't, if you're not circumcised and keep the law, you can't be saved. They had this big council, the Jerusalem council, brought the apostles, brought the elders of Jerusalem church together, together with Barnabas and Paul and, and, and others. And Paul had made some statements. And then uh, the apostle Peter had made some statements. And, the, and then James, who seemed to be the leader of the Jerusalem church, stands up and he says, Simeon, talking about the apostle Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people groups, To, listen, to take from them a people for his name. Do you see that? He says, the Apostle Peter's just been telling you how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets, Old Testament, agree just as it is written. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage. Look, if you will, in the book of John, the gospel according to John. Many of you probably will recognize this one, but did you, you may not have given it thought. I don't know. John chapter 15, verse 16. John 15, verse 16. Jesus is talking to his apostles, the, the, the men that he appointed as apostles. And he says this, you did not what? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And you could just hear the Apostle Peter say, now wait a minute, Lord. I I, I chose you. He said, no, you didn't. You see, we have to understand that even though we may not talk this way as much as we definitely should, according to this pervasively and clear biblical doctrine, And it may strike us a little bit strange to even speak or think this way. 
We have to submit our minds and hearts and lives to what God's Word says. So Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. John 17, John 17, 1. Flip over to John 17. This is the great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it's just scattered throughout the whole thing. Stay with me now. Let's read it. When Jesus, this is verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, thou hast, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have, what? Given him. God the Father gave God the Son a people for his own possession. A bride, the church. He's going to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is Jesus praying to his Father. And this is, verse 3, eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people who? Whom you gave me out of the world. There it is again. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those, here it is again, whom you have, what? Given me. For they are yours. Father, I desire, this is verse 24, skip down to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, here it is again, Whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. The book of Acts. Go back. I know I'm tossing you back and forth. Go to Acts 13. Verses 45 and following. 45 and following. Acts 13. 45 to 48. Acts 13, 45. But when the Jews... Saw the crowds. They were filled with jealousy. The apostle Paul had been preaching. People believed on Jesus. They were coming to Christ. They were becoming Christians. And these Jewish people were jealous. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. Reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside. And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold. We are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, quote, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And guess what happens? All of the Gentiles start getting happy that he said that. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And listen to this. And as many... As were appointed to eternal life, believed. Those that were appointed to eternal life, believed. You could 
literally hear a pin drop in this room. And I'm not even close to being finished. So we have to ask ourselves, is this not biblically and clearly pervasive in Scripture? That every one of us in this room must here and now conclude. That it is pervasively and clearly a biblical reality and doctrine. Now, I didn't say that everybody in this room fully understands it. Just like I don't believe any of us, nor do I ever think we will, until we are resurrected in glorified bodies, understand the Trinity. Or the virgin birth. Or the dual nature of Christ. That He is both God and man. That we will fully grasp the nature of the atonement. That a sinner that is guilty before God can actually be justified, forgiven and saved and accepted in the sight of God. Not on the basis of what they do, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ did in their place. Are you telling me you fully grasp that biblical theological truth? No, you do not. But we believe it. Why do we believe it? Because it is pervasively and clearly biblical. You don't have to fully understand it. You don't have to fully reconcile it in your own mind. But you can and should believe it. Because it is in the Bible. Now I'm going to pick up next week because I'm not done. But we're done enough. And everybody says amen to that. So we're done enough today. But we're not done with this issue. Because that sentence goes on. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Sanctification of the Spirit. Obedience to Jesus Christ. Sprinkling of the blood. We've got to go through all that. Because it's all together. It's all together connected intertwined. Let me say this. Although this biblical doctrine may be weighty and high, which makes it challenging for our finite, limited minds to fully comprehend, we can embrace it. I have four reasons. We can embrace it. Number one, because it is biblical doctrine. Number one, because it is biblical. Second, because it is for your joy and your strength as a Christian. Chosen pilgrims, take heart. That The reason that it's there is so that you will have joy and strength to persevere under the weight of persecution. Number three, because you can, you can embrace it, you can believe it, because it's biblical, because it's for your joy and strength. And thirdly, because it gives God all the glory. It gives God all the glory. Why are you saved? God. But don't I add something to it? No. That's why the hymn writer wrote the song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Blind, dead, alive by God and His grace. It gives God all the glory as the sovereign Lord of all things. And number four, because it humbles the pride of man. It humbles the pride of man. We as human beings squirm under these kinds of doctrines because we want to think in our human pride that it really depends on us. 
It is biblical. It's for our joy and strength. It gives God all the glory. It humbles the pride of man. And I leave you with this text. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll leave you with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Although I could read more, but we'll break in there at verse 26. Listen to this. This, this accords with those four reasons that I gave you. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Verse 29. So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you as the eternal, sovereign God. We bow before you humble by the weight of the reality that's been revealed to us in Scripture this morning. And God, for those of us that are recipients of amazing grace... For those of us who have believed and trusted in Christ. For those of us who have, as the sister read, become new creations in Christ. Father, we are so humbled. Humbled by this reality. That it wasn't decisively and ultimately us. But it was you. To display your grace. To display your mercy to display your love, to display your patience. You sovereignly chose us. Sent the Son into the world who went to the cross and died in our place and for our sins. Sent the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel so that we could hear and believe and repent and be saved. Thank you, Lord, this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. We pray this morning, if there's one here struggling for assurance in their life, we pray they would not make the mistake of asking, am I one of the elect? But God, we pray that even now in this moment, you would bid them to believe on Jesus, to put their trust in him and what he accomplished on the cross for the full and lasting assurance of their salvation in your sight. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.